What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Salam alaikum, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview. My guest today is Professor Peter Brand. Professor Brand is a Canadian Egyptologist. He is currently an associate professor at the University of Memphis in Tennessee in the United States. He completed his PhD in 1998, studying the monuments of King Seti I, the second ruler of the 19th dynasty. More recently, Professor Brand has published a mammoth book, Ramesses II, Egypt's Ultimate Pharaoh. This text is possibly the largest study of Ramesses II and his time ever conducted by an Egyptologist. It is an enormous book, full of detail and wonderful information. Professor Brand kindly agreed to visit the History of Egypt podcast for a series of conversations. In the course of these interviews, we will discuss the rise of Ramesses I and the Ramesid family, the reign of Seti I and its accomplishments, and then the long, magnificent years of Ramesses II. As you can imagine, and hopefully appreciate, Professor Brand has a wealth of knowledge about this period, and an unbridled enthusiasm to discuss every nook and cranny. As a result, the conversation is extremely detailed, and also quite long, about 90 minutes for our first session. I realise that might be quite a lot for the casual listener, so I've divided this conversation into two episodes, each 40 to 45 minutes in total. In the first conversation, we discuss the rise of Paramesu to the position of kingship, and we discuss the origins of this man and his family overall, what the new rulers tell us about Egyptian society around 1300 BCE. Then, in conversation two, we will discuss the reign of Ramesses I and his successor, Seti I, and how these two pharaohs kind of start the 19th dynasty, how it all fits together. So the first conversation will begin in a moment. The second conversation will release in a couple of days. Hopefully, this makes it all manageable. And I hope you enjoy it. So, good morning, Professor Brand, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to talking about one of my favorite fellows, Ramses I. <laughs> very good. And how are things in Memphis, Tennessee at the moment? Well, we're enjoying very pleasant autumn weather, I guess the reverse from down under, but um, it's, it's, it's gloriously, it's not too hot. And uh, we're right in the middle of the fall semester, <laughs> um, but we're about to have our fall break, so I have a little bit more time. Oh, very good. And you must be very busy working away on the final version of this Ramesses the second book. Yes, I'm really looking forward to uh, having this finally come out. And uh, the hopes is that it will actually appear in print at the end of uh, January or sometime in February. I'm just in the process of putting the final touches on the last series of proofs, as well as completing the index and trying to make it as user-friendly as possible. But yeah, the thing after so many years is finally happening. 
<laughs> it looks from what you've shown me it looks like a massive undertaking so how did this exactly come about well you know uh, i mean i have been working on the book actively it seems like for at least 10 years but in many ways the the conception goes back more than 20 uh, mm. after i finished my doctoral dissertation on seti the first and uh was working with my late mentor bill mernade at karnak on the hypostal hall project i remember discussing with him in 1990 i said you know, I want to do some work on Ramses II. I had some things I wanted to do, looking at Egyptian Hittite relations and seeing what happened after Seti with Ramses or uh, II. And other things came along. I, I I started to get an interest in the royal family, especially the 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 royal wives and their and their positions. And so there have been various threads that I've been pursuing really now, again, for ever since I finished my doctorate in the late 90s. And it's just sort of gelled. One of the big themes of the book is, is not just uh, Ramses II, but the rise of the Ramazide house, the end of the, the crisis of various kinds of crises at the end of the 18th dynasty, and and the evolution of Egypt's relationship with the Hittites, this long mm. sort of festering border war over Syria, um, the ideological conception of why the Egyptians kept fighting when they weren't making any progress, it seemed, and exploring the diplomacy and all this. And so uh, the, 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 the Egyptian Hittite relations is a big theme, uh, why the book calls Ramses II the ultimate pharaoh, why mm -hmm. I think he is the ultimate pharaoh, the ultimate paragon mm -hmm. of everything a pharaoh is supposed to be, and also looking at the important role that ideology plays, both the way the Egyptians conceived of their world and the way they talked about it in their monumental art and these historical inscriptions, which are heavily ideological, and we can dismiss it as propaganda, but I like to call it the ideological filter, but their their worldview and ex expectations of what a pharaoh is supposed to do shape the historical record that we have. And we have to understand that if we are to make any real sense of what actually was going on and why they were doing what they were doing. Hmm. Fair enough. So that so that's the broad conception. And today we're today we're really going to focus on the rise of the Remesid part, that first section. And then in the future, we'll, we will discuss Ramesses II himself in hopefully much greater detail than we will today. But just to start off with, over the past, say, 10 to 15 years, the there has been a sort of growing appreciation and awareness of figures like Ramesses I as these previously kind of overlooked figures in uh, sort of leading into the, the ascent of people like Ramesses II. So having having done your doctoral dissertation on Seti the First and his monuments particularly, and then transitioning into a, a full-scale publication study of Ramesses the Second overall, how has your appreciation of this this family or this little dynastic period evolved over time? Well, I think that again, trying to have a better understanding of how and why they came to power. Uh, why uh, Horemheb ultimately chose uh, this guy, Paramesu, who was a high military officer, was also a senior political figure as the one of the viziers, and having a better appreciation of how these and why these pharaohs, like both Seti I, 
and Ramses II look back in the period before their before they became pharaohs. Most of what we know about Ramses I is what Seti tells us about Ramses I after his death, at least as far as his time as king. And then, of course, we have a few monuments, like these uh, statues, that give us a sort of a brief biosketch or curriculum vitae of uh, Ramses I's rise to power. But ultimately, exactly what happened, exactly why Ramses I or Paramesu was chosen, um, and exactly why Seti I is telling us about his late father. Th this is important to understand how the these kings came into power and how they maintained this new royal house. The same is true, of course, with Ramses II, although we do have a lot of monuments and inscriptions about the lifetime of Seti I as pharaoh. Still, in understanding the ideology of kingship, understanding the way that these kings rose to power and how they justified their new position, having gone from being courtiers to pharaohs. A lot of that is this sort of retrospective view of which Ramses talks about his father Seti I and how Seti I talks about his father Ramses II. And I guess I've also come to understand that this ideology, the, the spin, if you will, and I don't want to just dismiss it as "quote unquote" propaganda, but actually the 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 political mythology, let's call it, uh, or the ideology of kingship, and this idealization of the careers and the pre-royal careers of these early pharaohs, is is something we have to understand to have a better understanding of the historical events. But also, it's a fascinating thing in itself to understand how these guys essentially were masters of the spin mm. and how, or, or, you know, public relations or, or political mythology, a political narrative mm -hmm. uh, in, in sort of modern sort of political parlance, they were masters of spin and they were always on message mm. and they had a very good uh, PR campaign. Very good. So, okay. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that, that rise. And the first question I would like to ask is probably one that I think many in the general public will be the most familiar with recently. And that is the so-called mummy of Ramesses I, which was in a museum in Niagara Falls. And then over a period of time was slowly identified by uh, scholars who suspected this might actually be a royal figure and then was repatriated to Egypt and now lies in glorious state in the Luxor Museum. My question to you is that on the currently evidence that is currently available, how likely do you think that this is Ramesses I himself and not, say, another member of the Ramesside family from later? Well, uh, the, the, the long story short is that it's neither proven nor disproven. Um, you, you call the the, the, the so-called mummy of Ramses I. Well, it's definitely a mummy, <laughs> but <True>. whether or <laughs> not it is a Ramses I is, a, is, is an open question. And again, mm. here we are faced, which I think it's important for the public to understand, and sometimes I think that some of my Egyptological colleagues need to understand, is that uh, if you're going to do ancient history, especially, you know, pharaonic history, you better begin to uh, get used to living with uncertainty. 
mm-hmm. or not having questions absolutely r- resolved because the evidence is often horribly ambiguous and you can make mm-hmm. very good uh, circumstantial cases. So look at a, this this mummy. Well, um, certainly Ramses I was not previously identified in the royal mummies in the cache, in these ta- cache tombs at Daryl Bahari or Amenhotep II in the Valley of the Kings. Um, also, we have a coffin uh, that that contained the mummy that we're almost certain, I still think this is true, the actual mummy of Ramses II. And of course, it was uh, had an inscription that was added on top of it, an ink inscription uh, by the priest that reburied it, that tells that it is uh, Ramses II. And yet, if you look at the appearance of the coffin, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't look like Ramses II. It kind of looks more like Horemheb or possibly Ramses I. Mm-hmm. It is a beautiful wooden coffin. It has some painted decoration applied here and there, but there's no trace of gilding. In fact, there's no trace that gilding was ever applied to it. The rather beat up coffin of Seti the First, which did have gilding, but was uh, all the gilding was stripped off by the tomb robbers or the priests themselves, and it covered with crude uh, plaster wash. Well, this coffin that Ramses the First. Ramses II was found in, was almost certainly either the coffin of Horemheb or of Ramses I. And very much like the work that's been done by Nicholas Reeves, I'm entirely in agreement that almost certainly the most likely candidate for that coffin, uh, the original owner, was Ramses I, who ruled rather briefly and wouldn't have had time necessarily to have completely finished his tomb equipment when he died. Um, on the other hand, Horemheb, who ruled at minimum 16 years, and, and some, including yourself, I suspect, believe that uh, over 20 years or maybe 27 years, mm-hmm. that um, presumably he wouldn't have had an unfinished coffin unless he was just a procrastinator. Uh, so <laughs> the fact that we did have a coffin that came from the royal cash that likely and perhaps even certainly once belonged to Ramses I, and yet we don't have a body of Ramses I, is interesting. So it suggests that at least the possibility that his body could have survived. Now, the the origins of this this mummy uh, and how it came about, it was obviously bought on on the market back probably sometime in the 1880s. And again, its background is rather murky, um, but the possibility that this local uh, family of, of almost glorified tomb robbers, the Abdul Rasuls, may have been dipping into the royal cash before it actually came to the attention of the antiquities officials, and they may have been basically dribbling stuff out. A mummy, if not the coffin, that might have actually been Ramses I could have ta- been taken from the from the cash and then sold. Um, on the market. And then, uh, of course, when it came to originally Niagara Falls, uh, it was given, along with all these other mummies there, these weird backstories of fantasy uh, individuals who didn't actually exist. And, and of course, the irony was, if it really was a royal mummy, then they completely misidentified the fact that they actually had one this time. <laughs> now, um, the the pose, of course, is seems to be, quote, unquote, royal. Certainly, the prominent aquiline nose of this mummy has a family resemblance to the Ramesses, but of course, a lot of ancient Egyptians could have looked like this. Uh, there is some apparent uh, uh, DNA testing that was done that was suggestive that seemed to be similar to the DNA that was tested for the uh, known uh, 
early 19th dynasty mummies that suggest a, 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 the problem with DNA, and I'm not an expert or microbiologist, but my, I know enough at least to understand that the ambis- big, uh, the evidence can be, again, ambiguous, uncertain, especially when you're dealing with DNA that is thousands of years old, but so far so good, at least for a strong possibility. Mm-hmm. Now, once it was first identified as the mummy of Ramses I, and it made its way to the Carlos Museum in Atlanta, um, and once uh, the uh, Egyptian government and the Egyptian people found out that there may be a exiled pharaoh's mummy in Egypt, well, this is exactly what everybody wanted to hear. I mean, everybody wants mm-hmm. it to be Ram- I'd love it to be Ramses I. I even now, after thinking it over for years and years, I'm actually more and more inclined to think that it probably is Ramses I. Of course, once it was identified uh, as Ramses I, there was no question that it was going to have to go back to its homeland one way or the other. And of course, why wouldn't anybody want it to go back as you know a lost king returning home? So mm-hmm. again, uh, the case is not proven, but it's certainly not disproven. There's a strong possibility that it is Ramses the first, but again, we'll never know for sure. Very good, very thorough answer. I appreciate that. That brings us to the end of part one. After the break, I want to get more into the origins of this particular family and how this all fits together with a picture of ancient Egyptian society at the time. The discussion is a little bit lengthy and gets quite complicated. So let's take a quick break and then we can return refreshed. See you in a moment. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of Grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, The French Revolution today. Or simply search for The French Revolution. And now part two. We have discussed the origins of Ramesses I as an official and servant of King Horemheb, and we have touched on his mummy, the physical remains that might be associated with this king. Now, I ask Professor Brand his thoughts on the origins of this family. Scholarly studies of this family, particularly the mummies of Ramesses II, Seti I, and Merneptah, have revealed interesting aspects of their heritage, where the family comes from in both a physical and a social sense. In this section, I ask Professor Brand his thoughts on the wider origins of the family. Where do the Ramesses come from in a political and social sense? And what does that tell us about society in Egypt around 1300 BCE? So if we take, take for the sake of argument that this Ramesses, that this mummy is in fact Ramesses. So studies of the Ramesside mummies overall, Seti I, Ramesses II, Merneptah, at the very least the 
solidly identified bodies. In the 1970s, particularly, uh, scholars like John Harris, you know, did X-ray analyses of these bodies to try and understand more about the families and how they fit into the mixed but uh, tentatively identified populations of ancient Egypt. And one of the conclusions that Harris and his team came to was that the family of Ramesses II, or we'll just say the Ramesides, seemed to have an interesting sort of mixed background with some evidence for um, quite southern um, origins, you know, down in southern Egypt, uh, Wawat, Kush, Nubia, that kind of Nilotic population. But they also seemed to have some uh, at least superficial traces of the northern eastern Mediterranean population. So these assessments would make sense archaeologically if the family of Ramesses are, broadly speaking, northerners, which does seem to be a very cosmopolitan area, a lot of populations moving through and mixing. My question to you is how did how do these sort of mixed uh, heritage uh, proposals track with the historical information that we get from these rulers in terms of how they represent themselves? Do they do they seem to embrace a kind of cosmopolitanism or are they a bit more parochial in the way they approach their own identification? Well, this, this this is one of these questions, again, where on the one hand, we have archaeological, in this case, anthropological evidence, and I'm not a physical anthropologist to be able to confidently to, you know, uh, agree with or debunk the, the findings of the work on the x-rays. Um, and also, sometimes archaeological evidence and textual or what we might call historical evidence doesn't always necessarily jive. And this this comes up, for instance, in the case of estimates of the death, uh, the age of death of mummies, where sometimes the physical anthropological uh, evidence uh, suggests dates that do not concur with the actual uh, known uh, historical data for how long or short a reign or an age uh, king lived to. Um, getting back, of course, uh, the 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 historical background of the Ramesides going back uh, to, for instance, uh, we know they came from the region of Avaris in the northeast delta. There is this stela of a middle-ranking military uh, official named Seti, who may very well be the um, the, the father of, of Ramses I, also known as Paramesis, when before he became Ramses I. Uh, we know a couple of his members of, his, of this man's family. Um, there's some possibility that they may have had, you know, some have argued for marriage connections with uh, family in Akmim. Uh, they were also, of course, at least to some extent, plugged into the, the court elite and the elite class of Egypt. One suspects there was lots of intermarriage among elite families, including ones not just in their local areas, but at court. And of course, at court, you know, in, in Memphis, the possibility that, that courtiers that came from different parts of the country would have come uh, in rub shoulders with others that were from other parts of the country and then may have made family marriage deals. So all this suggests that uh, either in the generation of and right before Paramesu or even far back sometime in the early ancestors going back, maybe sometime in the 18th dynasty, there may have been, been intermarriage with other families. The uh, the, the the little that we know about Paramesu's uh, Paramesu's uh, future Ramses the first his his uh, family origins his father's uh, Seti is that he was a typical late 18th dynasty military uh, 
uh, an official a courtier, that it was part of a, what was obviously a very cosmopolitan uh, court elite culture, not just cosmopolitan in terms of uh, uh, similar across Egypt, but even of course that this was at the height of the Bronze Age and the international system with diplomacy, et cetera. So just by being members of the court elite, there is going to be quite a bit of cosmopolitanism and the potential for all kinds of uh, intermarriages with people from uh, other elite families from across Egypt, pinning it down and being able to say, aha, that here we can show a direct family link between the family of Paramesu and other elite families. Like Again, the suggestion has been made that, that uh, Paramesu's uncle, a man named Kamwasa, may have been married to a member of uh, a woman who was a member of the uh, the extended or descendants of the famous Yuya and Tuya, the mothers of Queen T, and also somehow was related by uh, marriage to the family of of the of Pharaoh I, mm-hmm. is is intriguing, um, but it's also going fairly out in a limb. Mm-hmm. It, it is uh, so. For instance, there was an idea that was put forward by a scholar that studied this stila from Chicago, that uh, Paramesu if Paramesu is the one that is the son of Ram, this military officer Seti, that the military officer Seti had a brother named Kamwasa, again, a nice Ramazide family name that presumably was inherited from earlier generations. But this guy, Kamwasa, married a woman named Tom Wajsi, who seems to have been a member of the family, the you know, the descendants of Yuya and Tuya and the family of, of I. Now, this uncle, uh, Kamwasa was a fan bearer of the retinue, the sort of a court fan bearer. His brother, uh, the military officer Seti, was a middle ranking officer. He was not a general. He wasn't a common soldier, but he was not a charioteer. He wasn't a general of the army like his, like his son Paramesu would have become. And so on the one hand, uh, bef- at this time, uh, Paramesu's family was still on the make, if you will. Whereas uh, presumably the Chabamwajshi came from a family that was at the highest levels of the court elite being intermarried with the late 18th dynasty family. And even if I was already king, then she was sort of like the niece or something of of a pharaoh. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. why would their family want to uh, intermarry with some middle ranking officer? Now, on the other hand, if you're talking about during the time of Horemheb, in which I and his family had been repudiated. In fact, all of the uh, Amarna pharaohs had been repudiated, and 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 this family of Paramesu was being groomed for possible, uh, you know, uh, heirs of Horemheb, or just to be part of this new regime of Horemheb who had repudiated repudiated the family of I, why would they want to be, as it were, caught dead, marrying <laughs> a, 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 a young woman who was uh, the uh, related to a disgraced former pharaoh? And so it's sort of, I'm playing sort of devil's advocate or basically wet blanket. Sure. Um, but the, the, to my mind, these are some of the questions, I think, that either way, it may not have been a match that made much political sense. Depending on the perspective in the in the time period we're talking about, absolutely, that's a very strong point. So I don't I don't personally subscribe to the the hypothesis too strongly. I think it's an interesting, but I do I do wonder, having studied the reign of Horemheb and uh, Tutankhamun in some depth, whether there might have been a 
a certain logic in marrying, you know, say a younger brother like Kaim Waset to what would presumably be a younger sister like Taim Wajsi, these sort of second second tier children of um, these families, as perhaps even at a simple um, economic level of uniting what may have been wealthy families in the very far north and the very far south as an economic uh, union. But yes, as you say, it is it is very. But if we, if I can ask you to indulge in a bit of rampant speculation just for a moment, one thing we do seem, one thing we do see in the later 18th dynasty, and then very strongly in the reigns of Ramesses the first and um, Ramesses the second, is a concentrated investment of royal resources in building these temples and monuments in Wawat, in northern Nubia. Abu Simbel is obviously the classic example, but then you have uh, Tutankhamun at Faras and Kawa, and Amunhotep III at Soleb and Sedenga. Considering that the Ramesside pharaohs essentially pick up where Amunhotep III and Tutankhamun had left off, and uh, Horemheb gets involved a little bit too, how how would how do you conceptualize that sort of investment in northern Nubia as an expression of that ideological framework you were touching on earlier? What exactly are the Ramesside pharaohs, particularly, but maybe the late eighteenth dynasty pharaohs, trying to achieve with this investment in northern Nubian temples and um, imagery? Yeah, if, I mean, if we go in, in Egypt's involvement in, in Nubia in general, but especially in uh, the northern part of Nubia, what they call Wawat, uh, as, as far south as the second cataract, of course, it has a long tail historically, going back already to the, the Old Kingdom settlement in Buhan, which of course was a fortress, but also would have had at least at some point a temple. We know there was a Middle Kingdom one. We know there was an, a, a Tutmosid one at Buhan. There's the 12th dynasty pharaoh that, that built all these military fortifications. And at least some of the larger ones also would have had temples. Or So there was a gradual ramping up of Egypt's presence in Nubia. And of course that accelerated during the New Kingdom. And already we find there's, I think it's called Elysia. There's a small place with a rather small little grotto temple of Tutmosis III. And so it, it, the, it, it seems that the Egyptians, and of course, all the way south to the third cataract and even further south, if you think all the way down to Jebel Barkal, over the course of the New Kingdom, they are essentially colonizing Nubia and establishing a regular place, a, 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 you know, regular occupation and even sort of settlement in Nubia and almost assimilating Nubia to be the, the third part of Egypt. Um, even the, the Viceroy of Kush, um, that of course is ruling over Nubia, but his writ actually extends as far north as the southernmost part of Upper Egypt. Now, what one of the things you get with these 18th dynasty pharaohs is the establishment of these cult temples that are dedicated to the cult of the divine king as often an aspect of the gods. And this is a type of temple that in the new kingdom is known as a mansion of millions of years. And it is both a temple dedicated to one or some of the gods, like Amun Re, for instance, but also is dedicated to the the cult of the king as a divine being, and also to some extent as an avatar of that same God that so a temple like Abu Simbel is both dedicated 
to uh, Ray and Amun, but it is also dedicated to the king as a divine being, and to some extent to the king as avatar of Ray and Amun. And again, it's all mixed together. Now, the most of the 18th dynasty royal temples in Nubia are fairly small, and many of them are in the northern part. But of course, the, the great spectacular exception is Amenhotep III, who not only builds his quite far south of Soleb, which is in northern Sudan, um, but of course also builds on an unprecedented scale in terms, and of course also explicitly creates a cult, not just of Amun, but of, of the deified um, Amenhotep III as a moon god called Nebmatre, his prenomen, Nebmatre, Lord of Nubia. Now, Tutankhamun, to some extent, you know, builds a similar temple. We know that Akhenaten was building some kind of a, a temple um, in Nubia, although it was in Amarna, you know, an Aten temple. Um, and then uh, Ramses uh, II, of course, is, the, is, of course, the glorious culmination of this tradition. Uh, it may have beginning, uh, begun already with uh, Seti I, where he starts mm. to build at places like Aksha and Amarna West, uh, late in his reign, just begins to establish what might have been if he had lived longer, a, a sequence of royal uh, cult temples and temple towns, these fortified towns that were created to be part of the temple. But of course, he didn't live long enough to, to um, complete it, and Ramses II comes to the throne and essentially runs with it. And he builds these temples in, in two or three waves of construction. Very early ones like Beta Wali, uh, uh, Abu Simbel, which of course is, unfolds over the course of the first few decades of his reign, but is then added to later. And then of course the, the great wave during his later Jubilee years when he builds places like Yerf Hussein and Wadi Sabua and Dare. Okay. So touching on that um, sort of colonizing project that you were you were discussing, we know that uh, Ramesses I dedicated a small chapel, at least at Buhin, and seems to have invested somewhat in the fortress. How, to what extent does this, in your view, sort of tie in with that uh, military heritage of the family prior to their royal ascent? What I'm getting at here is that uh, some some historians of this period, uh, most notably Andrea Ganeas, have tentatively postulated that figures like Paramasu and Horemheb just before him seem might appear to be symptoms of a growing power and perhaps almost awareness of the army as a separate, increasingly separate military institution within Egyptian society, where before, say, the late 18th dynasty, the army was very much integrated with the rest of the government. A, a troop commander might also be an overseer of a farmland or the priests of a local region, for instance. But as the as Horemheb and then Paramasu and the Ramesses begin to establish themselves, we seem to find an increasing conception of the army as a thing, as an inst as institution in itself. To what extent do, do you think uh, these projects like colonizing Nubia or expanding the fortresses along the Sinai tie in with that uh, concept of sort of army self-awareness? Well, I, I think there, there's a, a, a series of things we have to consider here. First of all, as far as like these uh, uh, 
temple towns or fortified settlements in Nubia. Well, all pharaohs, of course, would establish uh, military structures as well as religious and, and sort of urban structures. Uh, the, the, the fact that they were from a line of, of generals or military men doesn't mean that they went to Buhan to basically demonstrate their military credentials. But it, you bring out an important point that has been uh, much discussed in, in this in the role of the army and its place within the larger administration of Egypt during the New Kingdom, especially at the end of the 18th, early 19th dynasty, and of course the evolution of the army as an institution. And on the one hand, uh, work like Nears, who did a very meticulous and detailed study of the, uh, the social and uh, administrative aspects of this, of course others have done. Um, one, there's no question that there's a ramping up of the institutionalization, you could say, and the 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 uh, the administrative uh, structure of the army over the course of the New Kingdom that again sort of reaches this um, um, climax in the late 18th, early 19th dynasty. And in fact, Nierce's work is part of a larger tradition, which actually is in uh, that is in German scholarship. Hmm. Uh, and here I would like to introduce a concept that I don't think often a lot of Egyptologists or, or the general public thinks about when we talk about what we call Egyptian history, which is the aspect of historiography, the study mm -hmm. of the history of history. And so on the one hand, yes, the army becomes more institutionalized. It becomes a more prominent and organized and structured part of the larger Egyptian state of the new kingdom. And this is obviously against the background of the imperial adventure of the, of the new kingdom pharaohs, especially uh, in the Tutmosid period to create these institutions. And, to, you know, because before the new kingdom, armies were almost ad hoc things that you raised when necessary. The idea of a standing army was, was something that was, and of course the, the structure of the army, both its complexity, the introduction of new technologies like the horse-drawn chariot, et cetera, and all this, so there's no question of that. And again, when when we get to the end of the 18th and the early 19th dynasty, again, it's reached its its uh, its peak in many ways. On the other hand, one has to be rather cautious, I think, about saying, "Oh, that we can understand or explain the end of the 18th dynasty and the rise of the Ramesses is essentially quote unquote military coup d'état or the army takes over." <laughs> Um, and here, I think uh, I want to reintroduce this topic of historiography. Niers is part of the German tradition, which goes back to Wolfgang Helk, who wrote his doctoral dissertation on uh, something that is, I forget the precise German translation uh, name, but it, it amounts to something like the influence of the of military officers on the transition from the 18th to the 19th dynasty. Mm. He's writing this in Germany in 1939, <laughs> on the eve of World War II. Mm. And then during his career, after the end of the fall of Nazism and during the Cold War, and what is often, as Osman and others have called it, the trauma of World War II on the German psyche, and then projecting that trauma, as they call it, on, uh, on the late 18th dynasty and the fallouts of the effect of the Marne period, aha, all these generals come to power. It's a military coup d'etat. Mm. What I would point out is 
that, of course, the military role of the pharaoh goes back to the beginnings of Egyptian civilization, um, uh, that the king was a war leader, um, as the army has become institutionalized. But another thing that I think we have to think about is that what we call different spheres of the state or even different branches of society, civilian versus military, clerical versus lay, the, the separation of church and state, or, but there was no separation of church and temple, I mean, temple and state. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, to the extent that the army became an institution, a bureaucratic institution, it was as much a part of the administration or the bureaucracy as the priesthood, which uh, or, or other what we would call "quote unquote" civilian branches, but to say, "Oh, this man's a priest, and therefore he's clergy, and this man's a civilian official because he's the overseer of the granary or the viceroy of Kush, or this guy's military, he's a he's a soldier because he's an overseer of the army." What happens when you have not just these late 18th, early 19th dynasty kings like Horemheb, Ramses I, and Seti I holding military, civilian, and clerical titles, but there are other members of the elite who hold military, civilian, what we would call military and civilian, and clerical and lay uh, administrative positions. It was all part of the bureaucracy, mm-hmm. and it all was part of the what we call the estate which for the Egyptians was the house of the king. So again, it's there's no question that the army becomes very influential, it becomes very institutionalized, that it extends across, uh, that there are generals in, in various positions of power. But again, a guy who can start off to be as, a, as an officer and eventually become a priest or a, a minister of this quote-unquote civilian state, but there can be priests that become viziers and, and, and generals also. Mm-hmm. And so, again, we have to be careful about imagining that this is just like some kind of 20th or 21st century military dictatorship, like Colonel Muammar Gaddafi in, in, in Libya overthrowing the civilian government and appointing himself El Presidente, as it were, or some South American dictator, uh, you know, Etc. And then, of course, you have places where somebody becomes a dictator, and then they they put on a uniform to pretend that they're a general. I I, I think there's a lot of crossover in these spheres of government in Egypt, but also we should be cautious about overly using modern analogies and even modern conceptions of the different spheres of the public mm-hmm. space and government. Uh, departments in in trying to figure out what's going on in ancient Egypt. Hmm, absolutely. That's a very good answer. I like that. Thank you. Whew. That was big, very thorough, but fascinating. The rise of the Ramesses is a really interesting phenomenon in social history. We'll pause the conversation there to catch our breath and absorb what Professor Brand has discussed In a couple of days, part two of this conversation will release, in which we discuss the royal reign of Ramesses I, and how he, and his family, established their power as pharaohs of Egypt. I'll see you in a couple of days, and I hope Ra blesses your land.
Hello, dear listener, and welcome to Conflicted, a podcast that tells stories of the Islamic past and present to help you make sense of the world today. Hosted by me, Thomas Small, author and filmmaker, and my good friend, Eamon Dean, an ex-Al-Qaeda jihadi turned MI6 spy, Conflicted is prepping its fifth season, which is coming to you very soon. And in the meantime, you can sign up to our Conflicted community. Subscribe to Conflicted wherever you get your podcasts.